We're continuing in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're dealing with the section where Jesus is discipling his followers on how to keep his commandments, or what we call the moral law of God. Um, We've dealt with, uh, you shall not murder, and saw how Jesus takes the law of God and applies that to the heart of sinners. And from that, we see ourselves as sinners, and we can look to him as the Savior. And that's the way we should keep all the commandments of God, and that's the way we should use the law of God. We also looked at, you shall not commit adultery. We saw how Jesus applied that to the heart, and we all became slain before holy God. And then Jesus says, I'm the Savior of sinners, right? Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the law of you shall not divorce. And we're going to um, discuss the sin of divorce this morning. All right? Maybe. Um, This is not one of those sermons that I particularly want to preach on, but it comes to us in the text, and um, God is saying, Ernie, you must not dodge this, as uncomfortable as it's going to make us feel. Um, So... Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's pray and let's ask God to bless our time spending his word this morning. And as I'm praying, pray for me. All right. God, we come before you knowing that you are a good, good father and you love us. And we know that you tell us these things because you love us. And so I pray that you would help me to uh, fulfill the law by showing your people here in this place what love looks like in light of this commandment. How we are to keep it as your people under the new covenant. And how through this, we can glorify your great name. And I also pray for those, Lord, who know not you, who sit under this word this morning, that they might find hope in the Savior of sinners, and that they might see you, Lord Jesus, um, extending your arms out to them, saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And God, I just pray that you would be pleased to hear the cries of those who depend upon you this morning and save souls by your grace. 
We thank you for this hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get out of preaching this sermon this morning. And here's how I'm going to do it. This is an extremely controversial topic, as you guys well know. And I don't want it to become a source of division amongst us as a body of believers. And because of that, what I want to do is I want to take a sermon to help you to understand what love looks like as we have to work out differing opinions, differing doctrines within our body, okay, to where the devil doesn't use it to divide us, okay? So I'm not going to be preaching on divorce and remarriage this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to help you to understand how we are to receive one another in light of differing opinions. And then I'm going to apply it next week to the divorce and remarriage controversy. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Okay. So you guys let me off the hook this morning, right? Now my reason for this is I want to share a little bit of my experience in my last pastorate. I faced this situation in our church and it did have the potential to divide us, as I said earlier. There were four elders, and we were split right down the middle. Two of us held the position that um, the scriptures taught that Christians have valid grounds to divorce and remarry while their ex-spouse is still living. And the other side taught, nope, Christians do not have the right or freedom to divorce and remarry as long as their ex remains alive. And so the question for us as elders was, what do we do in light of this controversy? How do we handle it? How do we keep the body life healthy and strong and, and brethren loving one another in the midst of differing opinions, right? Because we're not cookie cutouts here, are we? We do differ with one another, don't we? Please say yes, brothers and sisters. It's okay. <laughs> All right? And furthermore, think it through. We all are on different, um, we all are at different degrees in our maturity, right? I don't know the things that I know now that I, uh, or that I didn't know 10 years ago, right? So what does love look like in the midst of these things? And the answer to that is found in Romans chapter 14. So if you can turn to Romans chapter 14, and this settled the matter for us in the church where I held my first pastorate and had to deal with this issue. Now, I love talking about the love of God. That's a great subject. Wish I could preach on that all the time, right? So, um, Romans chapter 14, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And the context is the Apostle Paul is giving the Roman Christians uh, instruction on how to receive one another, love each other, accept each other when they're facing controversial, disputable matters. Okay? So let's read starting at verse 1. Receive 
one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. And I will be defining what these terms mean, weak and doubtful things, in a moment. Just hold tight here for a second. Verse 2, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And then Paul uses another illustration here. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and give God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So Paul's going to change, he's going to nuance this a little different now, beginning at verse 14. All right? I know... And am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if a brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. See the principle there? Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor to drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. 
Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. And then I'm going to read verse 1, because that's where it should have uh, finished. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And then verse 3, here's our example as to why we should do these things. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. And then Paul gives the reason why this has been inscripturated, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. And I'll stop there. All right? So I got a lot of explaining to do. The first thing I want to do is I want to set the context and my, my style of teaching, brothers and sisters, is to help you to understand and know your Bibles. That first and foremost. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn your attention to Scriptures to show you what this argument looks like in the Scriptures first before we apply it to ourselves, okay? And that's a, that's a, a principle of Bible interpretation. When you're reading Scriptures, don't start with applying it to yourselves first. Check to see how the author is applying a text in his day and then you're at liberty to apply it to your life, okay? So the question is, what is the Apostle Paul talking about here when he talks about um, weak faith, disputing over doubtful things, and, and judging and despising your brother as a result of those things? Well, um, the first illustration that he gives here, when he says, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Paul's not talking here about meat eaters versus vegetarians. You guys realize that, right? Although it could be applied to that, right? I mean, if we got a church where there's a bunch of meat eaters on one side and vegetarians on the other side, and both of them think that they're holy or that's found in the Word of God as to why they should be doing that, that, that can be a potential for a divide, right, in a church, right? But that's not what he's talking about. Hence the reason why we have to apply it according to the way he's applying it in the text. Make sense? Okay, so what I wanted you to do is turn to the book of Acts. I'm going to show you what Paul's talking about here as to why this was an issue uh, in the first century with first century Christians across the board. So whether it's the church of Galatia, Corinth, um, you name it, it was a problem in the first century, okay? So Acts chapter 10 begins to set the stage as to why there was so much issues between Jews and Gentiles who became Christians, okay? Uh, we're we're going to begin reading in verse 9. The next day, Acts chapter 10 verse 9, the next day as they went to their journey, and drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him 
and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. Meat. Okay? That's what was on this sheet. Meat. And what kind of meat? Okay, all kinds, but, but specifically in terms of the dietary laws for Jews. These are unclean. You understand? They weren't supposed to what? Touch this stuff. They're not supposed to eat it. And Peter has this dream, and he's, and he's like, man, I, I see meat, and, and unclean meat. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 13. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill, and what? Eat. Okay? Verse 14. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Shows you something about the way Peter kept the law from a boy all the way up until the point in time here, right? He's faithful. He's a faithful Jewish boy, right? And God, through a vision, is telling him to eat meat, to kill and eat meat. Forget those laws, in other words, right? Now, why in the world would the Holy Spirit be doing this with Peter in this point in time? Does anyone know the answer to that question? Well, yeah, Christ has fulfilled the law. That's true, DK. But even more importantly, that's true. But even more importantly, God is beginning to usher the kingdom and bring in who? Gentiles, right? And so God is changing the whole economy to be prepared and get ready to receive who? Gentiles. And so leaders have to know this right away, right? We can't have Peter walking around and, and Gentiles are being brought in and he's condemning them for eating pork and unclean animals. And the, You understand? Because they're not going to feel what? Accepted or welcome in God's covenant community. Get it? So God is coming to Peter first and foremost as the leader of the first century church, right? And he's telling him, Peter... Rise, kill, and eat, because I'm about to do something magnificent. And it's going to change the course of history, all right? And you're going to lead the way. That's what this is all about, okay? So, um, verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call what? Common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. These unclean animals that Peter was supposed to kill and eat represented who? The Gentiles. And God had cleansed them now that Christ had what? Died on the cross. Do you understand that? And paved the way that Gentiles might come in to the covenant community. This is what the book of Ephesians is all about. All right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And I mention this just to show you guys how broad this topic is in Scripture. So when you're reading your Bibles, you, you don't have to feel like you have to apply Romans chapter 14 to some, you know, weird application in our own lives. You know, what's Paul? Oh, Paul must be talking about vegetarian and meat eaters. And, you know, you just apply it to your little world. See, what I'm doing is I'm showing you how to apply the Scriptures in the historical context first, Right? So we don't do things like that and start cults. <laughs> do you guys know what I'm talking about? 
the church of the meat eaters and the church of the vegetarians or whatever it is. You know, we see these weird things going on in our society all in the name of the word of God. And we're like, I'm like, what is that? You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so um, what passage was that? Oh, Ephesians 3, right. Nice. You guys who know your Bibles. Did I say Ephesians 3 or you guys said that? Oh, I said it. Okay, I take that back then. Okay. Ephesians chapter 3 says this. Well, let's start in chapter 2, verse 14. And this is after that passage in 11 where he says, Therefore, uh, we're saved by grace through faith, that's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Uh, P- Paul's actually talking here about God ushering in the Gentiles into the covenant community. Notice verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. See that? So Paul's talking to Gentile communities and telling them, hey, look, God has decided from before the foundation of the world that you would be included, and now this is happening in time and space. Now that Jesus has died on the cross, Gentiles from all over are welcome. You understand? Let's keep reading. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, Gentiles, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. I was the average Gentile on the planet, okay, back in the day. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who had made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, that's referring to Jew and Gentile, having abolished in the flesh the enmity that is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace. The one new man from two that, that he's talking about there is Jew and Gentile. Okay? Let's keep reading. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's Jews and Gentiles. So that they're not all confused on how they work out their salvation as covenant communities or local churches. You guys with me? Okay, keep reading, verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Gentiles. That's us. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what I'm reading to you guys in the book of Acts, why God came to Peter and said, Peter, start eating what? Meat. Because I'm about to build. All right? He himself being the chief cornerstone, that's Jesus dying on the cross, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. For this reason, Paul says in verse 1, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you who? Gentiles. Okay? So, The point is, what God is doing is God is doing something miraculous, and he's fulfilling his promises, the promise that he made from before the foundation of the world, that Jesus Christ would come into the world and create a new humanity that includes both Jews and who? We call it today the church, right? The church of God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. That's you and I, brothers and sisters. 
because of our faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Now, here's the challenge for us. So, now that we're doing this thing called church and life together, and we believe in one God, one spirit, one faith, Jew and Gentile, one God, one spirit, one faith, clash with customs, right? Clash with, with the pharisaical Jewish mindset who's, who's so used to the Mosaic law, probably addicted to it, right? Having to work that out and, 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 and uh, doing all the Jewish customs. You think of the Feast of Tabernacles. You think of the Passover. You think of the Feast of Weeks. You think of all the ceremonial Sabbaths and so on and so forth that Jews gave themselves to. So now let me do an application for us. See, in America, we celebrate what during the holidays? Christmas, what else? Easter, what else? Thanksgiving, those are all what kind of holidays? Christian. Christian, right? Pagan. <laughs> I'm not going to say who that is. <laughs> Christian, right? But now things are what? Changing. They're trying to take the Christ out of Christmas. They don't want to mention Jesus when it comes to Easter, right? And Thanksgiving is just a day where we all give thanks to who knows what or where or why. We just give thanks, you know? We sit around the table and just say, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for that. But that's not the origin of why we do what we do, brothers and sisters. God is at the center, or was at the center in America. Make no bones about that. Let's, let's, make, not, let's get that clear. Okay, regardless of the debate whether we are a Christian nation or not, God has been at the center of America and he's being removed, and that's a problem. Okay, we don't even have to get into the debate, we don't even have to go there. God is being removed, and shame on us as a nation. We are beginning to reap the consequences of that. Now, back to the lecture at hand. So, Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul has these Jews, and he has these Gentiles who are coming together, and the Jews have all these dietary laws, or it would be like uh, someone coming to Pastor King's house, and they see a Christmas tree over there in the corner, and they're like, Pastor King celebrates what? Christmas. That's pagan. And he's got angels all sitting up there on his tree, and, and bulbs, and what, what is going on? Doesn't he know the origin of the Christian Christmas tree? And so on and so forth, right? And I don't. I'm just... And I love Christmas. I do. Okay? Or we could apply it to maybe issues of what? Music? Dress? Any cultural issues, right? Follow me? Okay? So what Paul's doing here is Paul's giving examples in his day of things that cause the Christians to clash, okay, in Jewish culture. So let me turn you to one example. Um, turn to, what are we going to go? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's do that one. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And the reason why I'm, sh I'm, I'm going from Acts to Corinthians to Romans, because to, I want to show you guys how broad this is in Scripture. It's like, man, I didn't, and your Bible will do this. Become very small, right? And we'll, and we'll be able to 
kind of follow the logic of Scripture first and foremost. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul dealing with Corinthians here, and uh, they were sort of like Americans, having the latest and the greatest and the best. And uh, Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. This Paul speaking to the church there. Knowledge puffs up, but love... Notice the principle there, but love edifies. And that's what I'm ultimately going to get to in terms of how we handle controversial issues. We've got to learn to love. And what does love look like in the midst of that? And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that idols, an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. That's a Christian worldview, right? So Paul's starting there. He's saying, as Christians, as a body, Corinth, our Christian worldview is we know that there's only one what? God, period. End of discussion. And all these so-called gods out there are not really what? We have that knowledge, don't we, brothers and sisters? We know that. But not everybody has that what? So when people come through those doors, we need to understand not everybody has that what? knowledge. There's, there's, there's Buddha sitting out there. There's, there's Islam and Allah. There's, there's many gods, right? But you and I know the what? Truth. The one true God. But Paul's telling the Corinthians how to operate in light of that. The fact that there's other gods out, so-called other gods out there. What he's doing is he's highlighting what love looks like in the midst of this, Right? See, Ernie King wants to stamp out every other God, you know? You guys feel me? Because we know there's one true. But, but God says knowledge puffs up. But love, what? Builds up. Do you understand? You and I need to learn to build up, not fill our heads with knowledge and be puffed up and then and start dominating people as a result of that because of what we know. He's teaching us how to love. Right? Love people who come through those doors that may have a different view than your Christian worldview. You understand that? Watch. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. Amen, brothers and sisters? And one Lord, Jesus Christ, hallelujah, through whom are all things and through him whom we live. That's you and I. Because of his shed blood, you and I live. And he's the one true God. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. There's a problem, right? That means everybody's not going to think and act and be a cookie cutout like we are when it comes to this. What do we do, right? He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is what? So back in Romans chapter 14, when the Bible talks about a weak conscience, it's referring to a conscience that hasn't been properly what? Educated by the Word of God. You understand that? So if somebody comes through those doors, and we know that, you know, uh, eating something off for title, we know is not an issue in our day. But let's say, like, somebody comes through those doors, and I know I'm going to start a little controversy here, but says, and says, you know what, I'm not so sure that drinking alcohol is wrong, and, and 
You understand? And they're still trying to work that out. How do you love them? You guys know what I'm talking about? See, that's what Paul's dealing with here, not only in Corinthians, but also in the book of Romans. When he says, you Jews and Gentiles and all your customs, you live together and you work it out. Don't go anywhere. Stay here and learn to love one another. Work it out. You don't be judging and you don't be despising and condemning. You learn to get along through the love and the grace of God. All right? He says, notice, this, because Paul's consistent in his theology. Verse 7, uh, or verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So food, the, the, the eating or not is not the issue, is what Paul's saying. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are what? Weak. Okay? That means they come through those doors, and you and I know, but they don't know, and their conscience is weak. Right? It hasn't been educated by the Word of God like it needs to be. It takes time to grow, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? It takes time to work out our theology in practical ways to where we're living with God and what we do with a clear conscience in all things. That's the issue. All right? He says in verse 9, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, that means your, your knowledge that, you know, there's really no other gods but Jesus Christ, so I'm at liberty to what? Eat, right? Get it? So think of Peter. Back when the sheet was dropped, he's at liberty to start what? Eating. Because his conscience was liberated by the word of God. So he can... Right? Maybe. Because even in the use of our liberties, brothers and sisters, we are still subject to who? The word of God. You are not at liberty to use your liberty apart from your relationship to God and his word. You understand that? So your freedom is not, we don't define freedom as Christians like they do out there in the world. Freedom out there in the world means I want to do as I please and I don't want to have to answer to anybody. The way I use my body, the way I use my time, the way I use all of my liberties. And we're not even talking about unlawful things. We're talking about liberties. But what Christians mean by freedom is we want to use our liberties in such a way as to where we're pleasing God. That's where we find liberty. Make sense? Follow me? And you and I are not to buy into the cultural logic that comes through those doors. All right? We have no right to use our liberties apart from Christ and his word. You have been set free, and you are free indeed. But use that freedom to serve Christ and your God in light of what he's done for you. And that's the issue here that Paul's addressing. That's where love begins. Your conscience and your life before God. The first principle that I want you guys to highlight here is, brothers and sisters, are you using the things that God has given you, including your liberties, with a conscience before the Lord? Conscience meaning awareness of God. A God consciousness. You remember last week we talked about Job? And Job says, you know what? Why should I look on a fair woman or, or a young maid? What does God think about that? You understand? 
what he's doing is he's living before who? Not men. Who? Not men. God. You understand? So often we live before one another, don't we? And we kind of develop a secret life that way too. You know, we, we got one face on before the brethren, and then when we're outside and doing something else, we're totally different people. Why is that? Because we're not living before God. Right? And we got to grow, don't we? When I first started out, I, I, I was weird that way. I had a Christian face. I had Christian language. Uh, but I was different in the home. My kids know that. Dad's moody, you know. And it doesn't mean I was insincere. It just means I was a young Christian. I was immature. And a part of that immaturity is I was more concerned about what people thought than who? God. You understand that? And I was like, Lord, I need to start living. Forget them. I need to start living before you first and foremost. Then I can start relating to them properly. Not the other way around. Right? And so Paul's teaching them how to use their liberty in light of what God thinks here. So, if you're free to eat meat that's been offered to an idol, Paul says, hold on, because you're not free yet. He gives some advice. He says here, verse 10, For if anyone sees that you have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, that's you and I, right? We know there's only one God, and we're at liberty to go ahead and eat that barbecue that's been offered on that, and we're tearing it up, right? Ribs that's been offered on the idol, right? And Phil, Phil, Phil divvied them up, too. We're all at Pastor Phil's house, and he's hooking it up. Right? He says, Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So that means that we're all at Phil's house, grubbing on some ribs, and then somebody comes along who, with a weak conscience, and they know what? That, those, that, that, that food has been offered to an idol. And they're like, they're not so sure we can do that. They're like, eh, you understand? Paul's saying here, be careful, Corinthians. You do have liberty, but you're not at liberty to use that liberty any old way you please. You understand? You need to consider that weak person who comes up off the street that might be all messed up in their theology and in their application or whatever, but they're a genuine what? Christian. They believe in Jesus, they heard the gospel, and they become saved, and they want to be a part of our community. And are we going to just, either you eat meat or you're not welcome here, because we love barbecue here at EGBC. <laughs> right? Right? Paul says you ain't operating in love at that point. So we got to make a choice. Man, barbecue or... And that's a tough choice for me. <laughs> Just kidding. He says this, verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. And what he means by because of your knowledge, meaning you're clear in your conscience, you have that knowledge that you can go, it's okay to go ahead and eat, right? But now you know that somebody's struggling amongst you and he's a new fledgling or she's a new fledgling believer and her conscience is weak right what do we do what does love look like how do we operate okay he says in verse 11 or verse 12 but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience you sin against christ now 
all of, that should stop us all dead in our tracks, right? Lord, I don't want to use my liberty that way. I, I just moved, even in the use of my liberty, I just moved into the category of sin because I used it selfishly. You understand? And you can put all of the liberties that we have in this context, brothers and sisters. It's a maturing issue for us, right? There's been so many times where I used my liberty selfishly, you guys, and I was walking all over God's people. And I didn't even realize it until I grew and I began to become sensitive to, hey, you know what? I mean, we're talking about things like issues with how I use the TV and what I have on it. You guys know what I'm talking about? A brother struggling in sin and he comes in and sits with you and you got cheerleaders doing all this and, you know, showing everything under the sun or whatever. And I'm like, hmm. Lord, does this fall into that category? Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. There's a thousand and one things that I can start bringing up right now, right? I used to listen to some music that I love a lot till this day. But I had to think that through. I was like, does that fall into this category, Lord? You guys know what I'm talking about. See, I got to start to learn to love around here. And God defines his love differently than the world, just like God defines freedom differently from the world. And love means that we have to sacrifice. Love means that we have to let go of something for the greater good of God and the body of Christ around here so that we can include more and more and more and grow and grow and grow and become that pillar and that ground of the truth, become that salt and light that God wants us to be as a church. This is how we do it. Right? Through love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up as the church. Do you understand? So that's one example. Now go back to Romans chapter 14. So they were having a problem with that in Corinth. You know what? Before we go to chapter 14, let's turn to one other passage, Galatians chapter 2. And I want to show you how one of the preeminent leaders in the church struggled with this. All right? The very one whom God told, hey, look, you can start eating meat now because I'm going to be including the Gentiles. Um, Galatians chapter 2, in verse uh, 11. Peter fell into the trap of living before men. And, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this particular piece up at this point, or this particular passage, because, you know, oftentimes we can make things black and white as, as, as Christians. You know, because I'm saved, that doesn't apply to me. I don't do those things. You know, it's only for the unsaved. They live that way, right? We can tend to do that, right? We fall in. Even though we don't talk that way, we can tend to live that way. But when we look at our lives, or when we use the law of God lawfully, it exposes sin, and we recognize that, you know what? Even though I'm saved, I'm still a what? I'm just saved by grace. I, I do all the sins, brothers and sisters. Now, let me qualify that. Meaning, I don't, I don't feel like I'm better than 
somebody who's out there, let's say, murdering somebody right now. Honestly, I don't. I don't feel better than, than somebody who's just abandoning themselves to sexually immoral stuff. And you name it, whatever way that looks like. I don't feel better than them because I know I have the potential right here. When I use God's law the way Christ tells me to, I'm like, Lord, I'm really no better than him. You just saved me. So if you let me go, Lord, that's where I'm headed. And that's why we say, there I go, but by the grace of who? That's why Charles Spurgeon said that. Was it Spurgeon? Somebody, yeah. Right. You understand? There you go, but by God's grace, honestly. So, so we're not saying to the world, look, we're better than you, or we're smarter than you, or we got it all figured out. What we're saying to the world is, no, I'm actually just like you apart from his grace. He saved me, and that's the hope that I'm holding out for you. The question is, do you want that? We're all sinners. So Peter fell back into this particular sin. Peter, Peter feared man. We know that, right? This is one of those character traits that Peter struggled with. How do we know that? Because the, when, when, Peter, when it was time for Peter to, to stand up before the Lord and to own that he was with Christ, what did he do? He feared man. He denied him. How many times? Three times. Peter struggled with the fear of man, right? I believe Peter was sincere when he says, Lord, even though all the disciples uh, betray you, I will not. I think he actually thought he would do that when the time came. But what he found out when that time came is that he had weak sauce faith, right? Right? And then he had to go to his room and weep like a little baby and remember what Jesus says, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Now get out there. Lord, there's hope for me, even though I denied you three times? Yeah, you're mine. Wow, that's grace. That's love. That's compassion. Because my sin itself was making me feel rejected. My sin itself was making me feel like an outcast, or you don't want me, Lord. Right? Verse 11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. This is the Apostle Paul, because he was to be blamed. Wow. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew, separated himself, fearing those who were of the who. Wow. Peter, you know what? I thought you were over this. You know that circumcision and the Judaizers and all these guys are, are, are what? What? They're sinners. Pharisees are sinners. And did you know God saved Pharisees who were of the circumcision? And they still struggled with all their Phariseeism and their legalistic approach to righteousness and all that. Do you understand? And God is calling us to love them too. You understand? Sometimes I think we polarize Pharisees or the, te- the tendency to be Pharisaical, right? I- I've-, I've been labeled that way as a parent because in my parenting career, you know, you swing back and forth. You know, sometimes you're, you're on the licentious 
thing, and then you swing back over here, and it's like, get in there, do this, and don't touch that, and the Lord this, and read your Bible, and all, all these laws, you know, you're trying to govern through law, right? And then you realize, whoa, what is this? Well, Peter struggled with that. He says, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumstances. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. You you understand that? Peter, if, if we were just to look at Peter in this point in time, we would all say, man, Peter was a hypocrite, right? Just like if we were to look at King David in his lifetime when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, we wouldn't conclude that he was a Christian, brothers and sisters. We would say he's a what? An adult, that adulterer, that murderer. He, could, he can't be saved. Look at, look at his life. Him saved? But we're not saved on the basis of what we do or don't do. We're not saved on the basis of how good or bad you are. You're saved on the basis of what? Have you owned and embraced Jesus as your Savior? And when we look at David, we can absolutely emphatically say, what about him? Yes, he did. That's why he saved. You understand? And same with Peter. Peter embraced Jesus Christ as a Savior, not his works, not his, not his religious upbringing, not his pharisaical tendencies, but Jesus and Jesus alone. But he lost sight of that here. All right? He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, this has nothing to do with preaching. It has altogether to do with what? How they were what? Living. Peter had his gospel message down to the, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed, right? But the way he was living right now was not consistent with his message. He was a bad witness. And that's why Paul said I had to confront him to his face because he was not consistent with the gospel in the way he was living. He was making people feel what? Not accepted around here. You know, it's like, man, Peter, last week with you, you were cool with the Gentiles, but now you're all pharisaical and you're, I feel like I can't be around you, bro. What's up? Right? He says this. It's a gospel issue. We who are, verse 15, or, or let's, let's pick up in verse 14. But when I saw them that, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Why do Jews, why do Gentiles when they come around you, certain Gentiles feel, feel like they have to measure up to mosaic standards and laws. Again, Peter, by the way you're living right now. You understand? Remember back to the ties that I was telling you? Because Pastor Ernie's wearing a tie, everybody who uses the pulpit around here should wear what? DK, you need to be in a tie if you're going to be up here, man. Dante, ties next week. Right? By right and order of... Pastor Doug, Pastor Phil, and Pastor Ernie. And anybody who goes through that needs to be wearing a tie, because thus saith who? Ernie. Ernie. Man. Men. And you guys are not living before who? Men. You're living before we want the word of God. 
Now, it's okay that I wear a tie, right? You guys are okay with that, right? But it's a non-issue. It's a, it's a cultural thing. It's like, Ernie likes to wear ties. I don't know why, what, what, what's up with that? But that's his preference. But it's not going to stop us from loving one another and learning to get along and grow in God's grace, right? Because Christ doesn't require that of us, but Christ requires us to love one another and not despise your brother because he's wearing a tie or not make your brother feel like he doesn't fit in because he's not wearing a tie. You understand? See, we need to keep the gospel at the center. That's the point. And the gospel won't allow you to start making your own traditions, rules, and regulations for what is acceptable or what is the basis of acceptance around here and the basis of rejection. Only the gospel here defines that. Are you in Christ? Then you're free. You understand that? You're included. And if you're not in Christ... We can't accept you in the membership here, but we can love you with the gospel, right? We're beggars just showing other beggars where they can get bread. All right, so back to Romans chapter 14. And uh, we're not going to um, go through the text. And I didn't plan to exegete that text. I just wanted to uh, use this as a foundation for how we handle controversial issues and matters around us. We have to keep love and the gospel at the center. Now, what I want to do in closing is I want to just highlight some disputable matters with you. Okay? Matters that are just... What are some disputable matters that churches actually face? And you can go ahead and answer, brothers and sisters. Don't feel free like... Uh, or feel free to answer is what I meant to say. What are some disputable matters that, that Satan would love us to become divided over in the church? Music. Okay, music in what way? Okay, contemporary. Uh, what's the issue there? Contemporary music is what? It might be cooler, okay. It might be cooler, but, 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 but why, why is it a source of division? Okay, it gives a bad message. According to whose standard? According to whose law? Whose rule? God, Where? Okay, See, if we can't come to the scriptures to validate those things, then that's just your opinion. Next. Right? You guys with me? So, let me ask you a question. Can a Christian marry an unbeliever? Should they marry an unbeliever? No. Well, based on what? Scripture. Scripture, right? You guys know the verse? Found in 1 Corinthians, you're not to be what? Unequally yoked with an unbeliever. So that's Christ's law or commandment that we have to keep. That is non-negotiable. That's not an opinion of Ernie. That's not an opinion of DK or the next person. That is Christ's word. Law, okay? That is not disputable or open for debate. Make sense? Now, how about how should Christians use Sunday? You know, 
when I look at the Bible, it said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it what? Holy. And that came from the Mosaic law. Now, how do I keep that commandment? I sure would like the Lord Jesus to speak about that in Matthew chapter 5. I know he talked about murder and adultery. And, and by the way, that's not an exhaustive list there in Matthew chapter 5. He's just giving principles on how to keep his commandments by God's grace. All right? Or should Christians stop drinking alcohol? Is it wrong for Christians to drink alcohol? Okay, but that's another principle, right, Sharon? That has to come into play with that issue. You understand? Excellent. You guys with me? How about the way we dress? Is that an issue before the Lord? Huh? Yes, in what way? Okay, we need to be... Thank you, both men and women, by the way, in our day. Back in Paul's day, it was just women, but now men are having a problem with modesty, right? I'm serious. I'm serious. Not just... Yeah. Right? So... Now, 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 let's just take that particular issue. See, the Bible says that we ought to be modest, but it doesn't really tell us what? What that looks like. So, how do we keep that commandment? What, how do we do that? Okay, very good. What does God think about it? We've got to go back to the Word of God, right? And where that commandment comes from, the context is Paul is giving, it's one of the pastoral epistles, and Paul is giving instruction to Timothy on how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. And he says, make sure your ladies, Timothy, conduct themselves in modest apparel. Well, why, Paul? And why is that just for the ladies? Because guess what, fellas? There's nothing new under the sun. Men back in the day had a problem with what? Lust, sexual immorality. And the ladies needed to make sure that they weren't a stumbling block to all the fellows in the church, okay, who are trying to serve and do the business of God, but then they, you know, they're struggling. You guys know what I'm talking about? And you become what the Bible calls a what? Stumbling block to your brother. That's why Paul gave that counsel in that context. Make sure your women conduct themselves modestly in the way they dress. You guys understand? See, that's love. That's not legalism, right? And love resonates with our consciences. Love resonates with what we know inwardly to be true. And it rests. We find rest for our soul when, when we get the truth as it is in Jesus, don't we? It's not burdensome. It's not grievous. We just know. That sounds right. I, you know what? That's a good thing. Not only does it sound right, it's good. You understand? And you find rest because God's commandments are not grievous or burdensome. They're right. And they're good. And they're holy. Okay. Um, the last thing here, I'm just picking fights with you this morning. Should Christians smoke? Should Christians watch TV now that our society's gone vile and perverted? It just has, yeah. Let's not beat around the bush. It's scary what we're seeing on TV. Now, 
having said all that, brothers and sisters, if you decide to watch TV, if you decide to smoke, and I'm not condoning these things, so do, I don't, don't send me any letters, guys, saying, you know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to teach a principle here. Mothers, be patient with me, okay? I know you probably want to plug your children's ears right now. If you want to play the video games, you know, till wee hours in the morning, okay, what I'm saying is you got to work that out in your conscience before God. My, my, my counsel to you is, are you living before God in what you're allowing? Do you understand that? Forget, bear with me, mothers, forget for a second what mom thinks. Forget what a, for a second what dad thinks. Are you, as a Christian, living before God in the way you're using your liberties? Do you understand that? That's where you start. That's what Romans chapter 14 is talking about. We're close here. Just turn back there. Let me, let me highlight this one principle because this is what I want to leave you with. And then I want to tie it in next week with how we handle this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Okay? Because I'm sure, just like I faced in my last pastorate, there's going to be people on both sides of the fence at EGBC. And that's okay, brothers and sisters. I'm okay with that. As long as you're living before who? In your conscience. But don't come to me saying, you know, Pastor Ernie, I want a divorce. And I just do because I went out of my marriage. I'm like, no way. No way. You follow me? But if you come to me and you say, you know what, Pastor Ernie, I believe that I have grounds to divorce, even though I might not share your opinion, and you say based upon adultery, because I see that in Scripture, and that's been interpreted by, by scholars over the centuries, and that's a disputable, debatable thing, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, okay, is that where the Lord has your conscience? then I'm going to encourage you the best way that I know how to in light of my views. You understand that? And that might just mean I just turn you over to somebody else. You understand? But I'm for you. I'm going to love you. I'm not going to destroy your faith. I'm not going to make you feel like you're not a Christian and you're not welcome around here. Follow me? Even though I might not share your opinion because we're both Christians. You understand? And we need to learn to love and get along with each other. Okay, let me just read this and then I'll be done. It says, one person, verse 5, one person esteems one day above the other, another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Convinced about what? He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. That's what he's convinced about. I'm do what I'm doing, I'm doing as to who? That's it. That's what you need to be convincing me of, brothers and sisters, if you're going to come to me over di disputable, debatable things, Okay. Are you living in what you allow in your conscience before the Lord? Okay? Or are you just following your desires, right? And are you just trying to have your way in life, you know, with things and stuff, all in the name of who? Okay? There's a big difference between the two. All right? What God requires of us is whatever you do, make sure you're doing it heartily as to who? The Lord Jesus. And I'm satisfied. You understand? I'm satisfied. Let's pray.